Amen. I want to put a verse up here. And uh, you see this, if you're a visitor, you see behind me it says infamous. And you're wondering, what is that? Well, I've been doing a series called Infamous, the bad boys and mean girls of the Bible. But I couldn't ignore the recent Supreme Court ruling. Um, Some things require a response. Some things demand a response. But I thought, might as well leave infamous up there because biblically, it was an infamous decision. And I'm going to show you that. So let's, uh, let's read just a few passages out of 2 Timothy 3. And then I'm going to bring a message where we stand, a response to the Supreme Court. Now look what Paul writes to Timothy. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I'm in 2 Timothy 3.12, if you want to go there with me. And then it says, but evil men and impostors will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. Then he goes on, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 16, I want us to all read out loud together, can we? All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. Father, thank you for your word today, the indestructible, irrefutable, eternal word of God. And we pray that today, Lord, you will speak to our hearts. I pray you will open our ears to hear the word of God. And our friends listening by radio and over the internet, Open our ears to hear the Word of God. And Lord, I thank you for establishing us in your Word, in the truth of your Word, and in nothing else. In Jesus' name. Can you pray with me, church, and say, I receive your Word, Lord, with meekness, engrafted into my soul. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, you're going to make it today. Amen. So good to see you. I don't know how many of you were kept up last night by fireworks going off. We had some neighbors about two houses down from us that decided to keep on going. And all of my uh, dogs, we have three dogs, and the poor creatures just had a heart attack. They were beside themselves. Usually they'll let me go into another room. No, 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 all three of them right at my feet everywhere I went and jumping all the time. So anyway, it's so good to have you today at, uh, on Independence Day weekend. Um, in the verses that we just read, we're told three things. We are told that certain persecution experiences are in store for everybody who lives godly in Christ Jesus. It's a guarantee. Not a promise you want to claim, but it's a guarantee. Persecution experiences are in store, either a lot or a little, but some for everybody who lives godly in Christ Jesus. The second thing, we're to stay true 
to Scripture. That's what he said. You must remain faithful to the things you've been taught, true to Scripture. And finally, we were told about the authority of Scripture in all things, that every word in the Bible is given by inspiration of God. Now, I really wanted to continue the series on bad boys, mean girls of the Bible today. We would have had more fun. But I can't ignore last week's Supreme Court decision any more than I could ignore a a pink elephant standing in the sanctuary. Those who know the Bible understand that this was not just a political loss. It was not just uh, Democrats winning over Republicans or liberals winning over conservatives. It was far, far more than that. It was very spiritual at its core. This ruling by the Supreme Court was yet another perilous step toward the dismantling of what originally made this nation great, which was the Judeo-Christian ethical foundation founded in the Word of God. If you know the Bible and walk with God and know the Lord, it was like a kick in your solar plexus spiritually. Because deep down, you knew this is serious. This means more than just uh, your average run-of-the-mill Supreme Court decision. It was an act of grievous rebellion against God the Creator. I'm going to show you that in a moment. One minister writes, America has repeatedly rejected God, His authority, His presence, His ways for a generation now, thereby forfeiting the grace and mercy that could be ours. We wonder why our economy fails, why crime is increasing, why horrific acts of violence have occurred, and why every day we wake up wondering when a terrorist attack is going to strike our shores and why it seems you wake up a stranger in a strange land. The answer is not that a vindictive God is throwing a temper tantrum, but that we have removed ourselves from His protection and His blessing. God puts a shield of protection over those who love Him. He puts His angels around them. It's called in the Bible a hedge of protection. And it would seem that hedge has been lifted. So I want to respond to this ruling from the pages of Scripture because all that really matters in the final analysis is what does God say about this in His Word? Because God will have the final say, not any man. So I'm going to deal with this in three parts today. Here they are. First, the authority of Scripture in all things. I want to establish that. Second, the SCOTUS ruling itself, the Supreme Court ruling itself. I want to address it. And third, God will not be mocked. Let me take them one at a time now, the authority of the Bible. Now, I want you to listen again from the text that I quoted from 2 Timothy. Listen to what the Bible says about itself. Watch this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Wow, what a statement. Now, notice it didn't say some Scripture. It didn't say most Scripture. It said all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That word inspiration is so powerful, it's the Greek word theonoustos, theos, God, noustos, breathed out. Here's what it's literally saying. God 
breathed out of his innermost being the words in this Bible. See, you and I, I'm speaking right now by breathing out. I, you, we, we can't talk breathing in. We must speak breathing out. As we breathe out, we speak. And so the Bible is giving us the picture here of God literally breathing out, speaking the words of Scripture. And Jesus added to that and said that it is out of the abundance of our hearts that the mouth speaks. If you want to know what somebody believes, how they live, what they really think about things, let them talk. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. That's what Jesus said in Luke 6.45. So out of God's heart, out of the abundance of his innermost thoughts, he breathed, he spoke out the scriptures you hold in your hand. There's not another book like this in the entire world. There's many books about God, but this is a book from God. Every other book in the world is from somebody in this world, but this book is not from this world. It is from him. All scripture is given by the breathed out word of God. So when you open it up, you're reading the very word of God. So that's what the Bible says of itself. So according to the Bible, it is God's authoritative, final, unchanging, non-negotiable message to mankind. The truth that it reveals, watch this, doesn't change to suit changing cultures or the fickle whims of men. It is an eternal word. The Bible says the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And Jesus preached the same thing. Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law of God's word until all of it is accomplished. So Jesus said the Old Testament, the New Testament, it's all the God-breathed, breathed out, inspired word of God. Now, here's the deal. America used to believe that, but no more. And that is how the Supreme Court ruling of Friday, June 26th, could happen. We are now on the other side of a generation of Americans who, beginning in the 1960s, rejected the idea of absolute, unchanging, non-negotiable truth. Instead, we bought into a lie. Here's the lie that there is no true or ultimate standard for life and for morality. It's not there. Now, this belief has a name, and I'm going to tell you its name. It's called relativism. Follow me. Relativism is a belief. It's a philosophy of life. It's the lens through which you view life and morality and truth. Relativism claims that all truth is subject to change. And in fact, truth should change to adapt to changing times and culture. One type of relativism is called moral relativism. Moral relativism teaches that God's moral laws may change over time, that they may become antiquated or irrelevant to a new, more enlightened culture that there is no absolute 
unchanging, non-negotiable, moral law. It's changeable. Give you a for instance. Moral relativists would say that what the Bible calls fornication, which is sex or cohabitation before marriage. A moral relativist would say, oh, that's an antiquated, outdated ideal that uh, should be changed to adapt to our new, more modern culture. That's old stuff. That's antique. Don't be an old fuddy-duddy and believe that. A more enlightened society sees no need for a piece of paper, a marriage contract, and considers sexual purity before marriage a totally ridiculous proposition. That's what moral relativism does. It takes a law of God, a principle of God, a truth of God, and changes it and bends it and shapes it to what they think it ought to be now. So truth to the relativist is elastic, bendable, moldable, changeable, negotiable. Do you get it? That's relativism. A second philosophy that rides the coattails of relativism is humanism. Humanism is the belief that man rules the world, not God. That's humanism. Humanism says that what man deems to be true is the final word on all things. Man decides what is right and wrong, moral or immoral, good or bad, not God and certainly not the Bible. The only problem with this philosophy is the Bible's warning. Listen to this warning, quote, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And then Jeremiah wrote, it is not even in man to direct his own steps. Because you see, folks, the Bible says that you and I are born with fallen natures. We inherited Adam's nature, fallen We naturally sin. Nobody has to teach us to sin. We naturally sin. We're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. So we have a skewed lens through which we judge things, and that's why we need the Bible. Because we will go astray. We will drift away from God unless the Word of God given to us by divine revelation directs our steps. Now listen closely. When our nation embraced relativism and humanism, the Bible became a merely historical book of suggestions. And so did all the other older value systems, which meant the Constitution of the United States also became nothing more than a historical document of old, antiquated, dried-up ideas. Both the Bible and the Constitution became outdated sets of values relevant for generations past, but not relevant for us today. Do you see where I'm going? Therefore, our society decided that we need to create our own guidelines, our own beliefs, our own boundaries, which, of course, are always evolving because truth is a changing, evolving, adapting thing. And I want to tell you, for the record, relativism is nothing new. I find relativism way back in the Old Testament among God's own people, Israel. 
Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah describes backslidden Israel of old. Watch this. Quote, Behold, the word of the Lord is a reproach to them. They have no delight in it. So Israel's decline began with a rejection of the word of God. And why did they reject God's word? Well, Jeremiah reveals they had embraced relativism. Watch this. At least seven times in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet cuts to the heart of Israel's problem. Listen to how he describes it. Quote, yet they did not obey or incline their ear to my word. They rejected the word and where'd they go? But everybody followed the dictates of his own evil heart. But there's a problem with that. If you follow your own heart and not God's word, there is a way that will seem right to you, but the end of it is death. Jeremiah just described pure relativism. God had a major issue with Israel. It was this. You keep following the feelings, the emotions, the impulses, the ideas of your own heart, and you reject my word. The result was this. Listen to the result of their rejecting the word of God and turning to relativism. It says, Jeremiah says they have perverted their way. They have thrown off God's yoke and broken all chains of restraint. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Jeremiah woke up, and woke up and realized that there was no truth anymore in Judah. You could not find the truth because everybody had turned to relativism, so everybody had their own truth, and there was no ultimate truth because they had rejected the Word of God. Ring a bell? Listen to God's response. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself? on such a nation as this? And he did. Israel's ancient relativism resulted in their undoing. They ultimately lost everything because they rejected God's word and went their own way. As of today, listen carefully to me, every one of us possesses one of two possible worldviews. Everyone listening to me, everybody watching right now live, and everybody on radio, listen, we all possess one of two worldviews. Here they are. First one, you have a biblical worldview where your primary truth source is unchanging scripture. Or you have a non-biblical worldview where truth is relative and man is the final judge. You've got one of those two. Now, America has clearly, clearly decided which one they're, they're taking. America has embraced and, and adopted and is running with a non-biblical worldview where truth is relative and man is the final judge, and that can only lead to catastrophe. Our stand at turning point, where do we stand? I'll tell you where we stand. But I already read it in the text. But you must remain faithful. Listen, I'm telling this to you. Paul told Timothy, I receive it. I'm sharing it with you. This is straight to you. I'm making it personal. You must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And what do those Holy Scriptures do for you? They have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. This Bible always leads you one way, straight to the cross straight to forgiveness, straight to salvation, and straight to glory. That's where this word leads. 
so the Bible is our authoritative source of truth. And anything that contradicts it, I reject because I believe it's the Word of God. Now, then there is the Supreme Court ruling itself. Let me shoot straight with you. The Supreme Court justices who voted for same-sex marriage knew that this was not a genuine constitutional ruling and that they were legislating from a biased bench. Listen to Chief Justice Roberts. Listen to what he said about the ruling. The majority's position was indefensible as a matter of constitutional law. Did you know he said that? And listen closely to Justice Anthony Scalia's dissent. Listen to what he wrote, dissenting from the majority's opinion. He said, when the 14th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, which provides equal protection under the law, that's the 14th Amendment, it was ratified in 1868, right after the Civil War. Now watch this. When the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, every state limited marriage to one man and one woman, and no one doubted the constitutionality of doing so. Do you know he said that? Media is not going to tell you he said that. Scalia continues with a note of sarcasm. You can hear sarcasm in his voice. They, the majority, have discovered, he says, that's in quotes. Here's his sarcasm. Shazam. They have discovered in the 14th Amendment a fundamental right overlooked by every person alive, a fundamental right overlooked by every person alive at the time of ratification and almost everyone else in the time since. Now, the five justices who redefine marriage are not stupid. They're unwise, but they're not stupid. They know what the framers of the Constitution meant and what the 14th Amendment really means. They simply didn't care. And are shamelessly intent on using their power to change America. Now, I got to tell you, more than the 14th Amendment, nothing describes what marriage was really created for better than the Word of God that came from the God of the Word who created all things. And the Bible tells us what his intent was for marriage. It's so clear. Let me turn first to Moses who wrote. Here's Moses in Genesis chapter 2, 24 to 25. For this reason. Everybody say for this reason. A man, now the Hebrew there is ish, shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, Ishshaw, is the Hebrew, and they shall become one flesh. Now, that's, that's way back in the beginning, the dawn of time. Moses writes that God created male and female, ish, ishaw, for holy matrimony and to become one flesh. And that's the reason. God gave a reason for this reason. Catch this. He's giving us the reason a man and woman are married. The reason is God made two separate, distinct genders, a male, Ish, female, Ishah, and said, for that reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. 
Now, Jesus quoted and affirmed this. Listen to Jesus. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male? Now, here in the Greek, it's arsen, and it means it's very gender-specific. Hebrew and Greek are extremely gender-specific. Have you not read that he also who, uh, who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And the Greek word there is thelu, which means she who nurses children. And said, now, follow Jesus here. Jesus is reaching back to the beginning and pointing out God's creation of two distinct genders. That's what he's saying. Haven't you read about it? He's telling the Pharisees and Sadducees, haven't you read? From the beginning. So he's going all the way back to God's original intent. He made them male. He made them female. And then Jesus continued, for this reason. There it is again. There's that phrase, for this reason. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. And there the word for wife is the Greek gune, and it means a woman. That's what it means. He's saying that God created the two opposite genders for the express purpose of coming together in marriage and producing children. Now, that's straight out of the mouth of Jesus. Jesus next said something very important. In no uncertain terms, he said that arrangement was not to be trifled with. Listen to what he says, Matthew 19, 4 to 6. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. What did he join together? This isn't just about divorce, this verse. He has just talked about God's creation of male-female gender, and that those two are created to be married. And then he says, let not man separate that. Fool with it. As we would say in Texas, mess with it. Trifle with it. Paul the Apostle affirmed the same thing. He said, as the Scriptures say, this is Paul, Ephesians 5.31, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. Same Greek words. It's as clear as the rising sun. So here you got the giver of the law, Moses. Then you have the Messiah of the world, Jesus. Then you have the Apostle that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Three major and I can't even say Jesus was a major heavyweight of the Bible. Jesus was the Bible, the fulfillment of the Bible. But three major Bible heavyweights bringing the same message about marriage. I mean, you can play Scripture on a torture rack and twist it all around until it screams what you want it to. But you can't erase the clear meaning. So the Bible is authoritative here. No matter how we may feel about it or how much we may want to change it. And I say this in love. Listen, I'm a preacher and a, a pastor. I'm a teacher. And when I see the Bible being really attacked, something in me deep, deep down wants to, wants to clarify things. 
And, and I want to clarify what the Bible says. I'm not preaching or, or saying this out of love or lack of love. I'm telling you in love, in the Spirit, by the authority of the Word, if you want to go back to the beginning, you want to go to the Bible, the Bible couldn't be more clear. And speaking of how you might feel about it, I've noticed that one of the statements from pro-same-sex marriage advocates following the Supreme Court decision was, was this statement, love wins. Now, there's an implication behind that statement, and it is love has triumphed over bigotry, judgmentalism, homophobia, and over the ages-old understanding of God's Word. Love has won. But hang on. Do we really want to go there? Listen carefully to me. Let me ask you a question. Since when has love canceled truth? Let me ask another way. Can love justify what the Bible calls sin? Since when did love get that kind of power? If it's true that love can cancel out sin, love can justify sin, love can change God's Word, if that's true, that's great news for people involved in other kinds of sexual sins as well. Adulterers can now say, hey, we love each other, so it's no longer adultery. Or fornicators can now shout out, love wins. Our fornication is no longer fornication because we love each other. Now, watch this. We know that's not true. We know that's not true. Now, following that twisted logic, what about the day that an adult and a child proclaim they love each other? What about the day when multiple women proclaim they love one man? Are we then going to do away with polygamy laws because love wins? Here's the reality, folks. Love and truth go together like inseparable twins. Love and truth. Now, see, our culture has maximized feeling and minimized fact. Our culture has put a premium on emotions and has marginalized truth. But you cannot do that without getting into major trouble. God is a God of love. But he's also a God of holiness, and his holiness requires submission to his word. You know, you're a parent. You say to your child, you cannot cross that street. Now, um, would you love them if they said, I'm going to cross that street anyway. Please, mom and dad, I, I just, I love crossing the street. I just cherish crossing the street, and it's just in me to cross that street. Are you going to say, well, you know what? God bless you. Love wins. Walk across. Do you love them? No, you want to slap them and say, hey, stupid, you can't cross that street. You may die. This whole thing of love wins, it doesn't make any sense. Listen to what Paul said. Paul said, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Did you catch that? That, that is Paul's incredible. His description of love is unparalleled in, in all the literature of the world in 1 Corinthians 13. And one of the attributes of love, Paul says, love stands right next to truth and rejoices when truth wins. Love rejoices with the truth. 
So I wish that the cry across America a week ago would have been truth wins. So in order to rule the way they did, the Supreme Court created their own truth based around the so-called newly discovered rights of homosexuals in order to redefine what God clearly has said should not be torn asunder. That's what they had to do, and that's what they did. Now, finally, God will not be mocked. You know, I, I don't like standing up here and saying this. I just can't tell you how I've struggled over this decision that was made. I haven't even looked at news since that day. I had to go pray. I had to get into the Word. I spent hours and hours and hours studying the Bible in relation to this kind of thing and what it had to say about this decision because the Bible is my source of truth. But I got to tell you, unfortunately, God's judgment is inevitable, folks. It's inevitable. Remember God's word to Jeremiah? Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? And, and I read, and let me share with you what I find. Scripture shows that God's judgment comes in two ways. It comes first with the bitter consequences for disobedience that are built into sin. It says the wages of sin is death. So sin pays. It, it pays a wage. When, when you go off into sin, it pays you. It's like an employer. It pays you. And when you serve sin, it gives you wages. It gives you a check. But what is the check? It's death. And, and when you say death, uh, the wages of sin is death, that means spiritual death. That means spiritual destruction. There is no way you get something good out of something bad. There is no way. Sin has a payday. Sin pays a check, and it's a bitter check. But walking with God also pays a check, and it's a good check. It is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus died on the cross to deliver us from this present evil world so that we could be involved in works of righteousness that pay a godly wage and a blessed wage. But Jeremiah wrote to a soon-to-be-judged Judah, your wickedness will bring its own punishment. So there you go. Your wickedness will bring your own punishment. Built into sin is its own punishment. But then secondly, judgment can come by God's direct actions, as with Sodom and Gomorrah, where God directly intervenes in history and brings judgment. Whether it touches the economy, whether it is some kind of a natural disaster, whether it is some other catastrophic event, I notice over and over in the Old Testament, and believe me, I'm not trying to be a downer today, but I've got to tell you what I have found. Over and over in the Bible, when God's people, people that had formerly been known by his name, walked away from him, he allowed foreign armies, foreign peoples to come in, and they became his chastening rod. But also, God directly judges in a way that we don't imagine, that we can't, we've, we've not been taught. When I say the judgment of God, you think of God losing his temper and this old-fashioned kind of 
antiquated, mythological kind of God hurling thunderbolts and lightning bolts on the people. He's, that, that's not what God does. God doesn't lose his temper. God does not do what he tells us not to do. God has, has wrath. God answers sin. And sometimes he does it by direct judgment. One of the ways he does it is he lifts his hand. Romans 1 tells us about a nation, a people, that decide to walk away from him. They said, we don't want you in our thoughts. We don't want you in our public square. We don't want to read your word. We are going to follow the dictates of our own heart. We're going to embrace relativism. We reject your truth. And they went their own way. And God said they ended up worshiping created things instead of the creator. And when they did that, it says three times, God turned them over, God turned them over, God gave them over. The first time he turned them over, it was to promiscuity. The second time he turned them over, it was to perversion. And the third time he turned them over, it was to profanity. And when I say profanity, I mean profaneness. Everything about that culture digressed into being profane because now you've got people walking around that don't have a sliver of the work of God going on in their life because God finally said, okay, you want to go that way? Go ahead. And things that were deep, down in people, but restrained by God are no longer restrained. The restraint is lifted. Church, we're watching that. Now, in closing, I'm going to tell you my resolve. I'm going to end on a good note, believe it or not. Here's my resolve. I watch all this and I say, God, what are we going to do? Look at this. I can't believe this is America. What, what? And I love all people. Let me tell you something. I, I did a blog last week on Facebook, and I got overwhelmingly positive responses, but some of them were very vile, very accusative. I was accused of things that were new to me. I read words I didn't know existed. I had to go see if they were in the dictionary. <laughs> Vile things were said to me. People who don't even know me. Just stuff that just, I, I had to close the computer and get up and walk around. I had to use delete. New cuss words. Vile stuff. And I'm reading this, and I was accused of being on the wrong side of history. Jeff, you're on the wrong side of history. You need to get on the right side of history. And here's where I responded. I said, I'd rather be on the wrong side of your history and the right side of his story. That's what I said. Because here's the deal, church. Society has been wrong over and over again through the centuries. I hope you've realized the majority is not always right. Many times the majority is completely wrong. Ask Sodom, ask Gomorrah, ask Rome, ask Greece, ask Egypt, ancient Egypt, ask them. Is the majority always right? No. As long as you know you're in line with him and his word, and he loves everybody, and I love everybody. I was accused of being homophobic and all these things. And I said, look, I've, I've, 
had friends that were homosexual. I love all people, everyone. I am, this is not about a person. This is about God saying, here is what I am decreeing as moral law. This is my morality. This is what I created the genders for. This is what I did in the beginning. And when, they, and when I'm told, and I am, and we all are, I was born this way. I say, so was I. I was born in sin, shaped in iniquity. We all have sins that we would gravitate to in a moment if God lifted his hand. But by the Spirit of God, we mortify the deeds of the flesh so that we can live. Here's my resolve. It says, be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. And what opportunities are looking at us in these evil days? Here it is, harvest. Everybody say with me, harvest. It's harvest time, church. Say it again. It's harvest time. Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Here's what I believe. When the days are darkest, grace is brightest. And so what are we going to do? We're going to, as long as God gives us the open door and the opportunity and the ability to meet here on, uh, throughout the week and to be on radio and take the gospel everywhere we can, we're going to do it. We're going to cast the net of salvation because Paul began Romans 1 with this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. Can we stand together today? So I want you to say with me, multitudes are coming to Jesus in this midnight hour. Can we just do it one more time? I want hell to hear it, and I want heaven to rejoice over it. Multitudes are coming to Jesus in this midnight hour. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. While at the same time, our nation is going to see severe chastening. And I'm going to use those chastenings to step in with the word of grace. But it's coming. It's already here. It's already upon us. Let's lift our hands to the Savior. Father, we thank you that there is a remnant in America that have not bowed the knee to Baal. There's a remnant. And Lord, you have placed in the hands of that remnant a double-edged sword, spiritually speaking, the word of God, the word of the gospel. And Lord, we're going to take advantage of these evil days. We're going to be opportunists in these evil days. And we're going to, we're going to cast in the sickle. We're going to, we're going to swing that sickle and we are going to bring multitudes into the kingdom of God in this dark hour. Now will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, today help me to be a part of an end time outreach 
where multitudes are saved. Now tell the Lord, thank you for your grace on my own life, for the restraint of the Holy Spirit, empowering me to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. In Jesus' name, let's worship. Thank you, Lord.